Put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that he need to be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who by thy grace in Jesus Christ hath clothed us in his righteousness and in his honor, we come into thy presence mindful of our need and mindful of thy greatness. Bless us, our Father, in thy service and strengthen us day by day that in all things we may be able to stand in thy strength, conquer in thy name, and rejoice by thy grace. Bless us in thy service, in Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is from the Epistle to the Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verses 8 through 16. Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, and our subject, change. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore the sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky and multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. <clears throat> For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. This passage in Hebrews deals with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and their faith. 
Very commonly, this passage is misinterpreted in terms of Neoplatonic ideas. So these men looked always for a spiritual as against a material promise, and that their hope was entirely in a spiritual fulfillment rather than in a material fulfillment. Now this is a Neoplatonic reading. It is imposing the structure of Greek philosophy onto scripture. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, indeed looked for heaven. But they also looked for a material promised land. They had made a pilgrimage, Abraham and Sarah, out of her of the Chaldees at God's command because a material realm, Canaan, was to be ultimately the place where their descendants would be established. They were to go there as the first step in its conquest. They died in faith confident that God would keep his word concerning the possession of Canaan, their growth into a nation, and the blessing of all peoples through the promised seed who would ultimately be born through them. They rejoiced in that fulfillment from afar, and they saw it as the counsel of God. Because they did not yet possess Canaan, they were strangers and pilgrims in a foreign land, and they knew that their citizenship was in heaven, their ultimate destination and home after life on this world was ended. The patriarchs felt no disdain for the flesh nor for this earth. They did not feel that things material were nothing. The contrast for scripture is not between the material and the spiritual, but between the fallen and the unfallen. After all, hell is a spiritual realm. But who wants any part of hell? The problem for them was that this world was fallen but that God, through their conquest of Canaan in time to come, would make it the first step in the conquest of all earth through his chosen seed. And the whole universe would be blessed through that chosen seed and redeemed so that they had the promise of the conquest of Canaan, the blessing of all the earth through the chosen seed, and the glory of heaven after this life. As a result for them, the contrast is not between the material and the spiritual, but between the fallen and the unfallen. Their pilgrimage to Canaan was a major step in God's plan for the reconquest of that which was fallen. Moreover, the contrast is nowhere between the changing and the unchanging. 
Again, this is Neoplatonic. A Neoplatonists feel that that which is changing is not good and that which is permanent is good. The problem is not change, it is sin. Nor is the virtue permanence or an unchanging condition. It is the righteousness of God unto salvation. This is an important point. Because so often Christians fall into this Neoplatonic trap and see salvation not as redemption, not as regeneration, but as something unchanging. There are three possible views with regard to change. And it is important for us to understand the biblical perspective with regard to change, or we will be readily sucked into the trap that over and over again in history has beset men. We have referred already to the Greek view, the Neoplatonic view, that change is bad. Aristotle said that perfection is self-sufficiency and permanency. As a result, for Aristotle and the Greeks, a state should be totally self-sufficient. It should not have to buy from any other country. Sell to them, yes, but never buy from them. And of course, this idea has recurred over and over in civilization, and the whole tariff concept is built on this Greek principle that it is somehow bad to buy from other people, but good to sell from them. And when you have all the countries in the world thinking that way, you have the Depression of the 30s, which was precipitated precisely by that kind of thinking carried to the nth degree, and we're getting it again. Moreover, the idea of the Greeks was that you should create a state which was unchanging, fixed, permanent. And so the Greek philosophers, like Plato, were busy writing ideal states, such as Plato's Republic, a communist utopia in which everything was planned and fixed and never changing. Marxism is one version of this Greek hostility to change. It aims at establishing a final order on earth in which everything has been planned and is unchanging. For the Greek, the purpose of the law is to fix things. That's its primary function. We think of the law as Christians as having the righteousness of God, the justice of God as its end. But for the Greeks, the purpose of law was to fix things, and a law was good if you couldn't change anything, if things were frozen by it. For them, the static and the immutable, the unchanging, were higher. They were true, they were good, they were beautiful, 
as against that which fluctuates and changes. The real is the permanent they held. It is the unchanging. Whereas the things that change for them were basically unreal. One scholar, Baker, in commenting on this Greek view of the unchanging has written very tellingly, and I quote, The Greeks had resolved the problem of evil in terms of permanence and change. In general, their position was that matter, which is unstained, is stable, changing, is evil, and that reason, which enjoys an Iliadic permanence, is good. Evil is not a creation of man's perverted will, but merely a characteristic of matter. Following Parmenides, they had consistently held matter in opprobrium as the very antithesis of reason, idea, form, conceptual reality. In Neoplatonism, an earthling philosophy, the derogation of matter had reached its apex, and it was from Neoplatonism that Augustine learned most about the perfection of pure, insubstantial being, about the wickedness that is the non-entity of matter. For in matter, said Plotinus, we have no mere absence of means of strength, it is utter destitution of sense, of virtue, of beauty, of pattern, of ideal principle of quality. This is surely ugliness, utter disgracefulness, unredeemed evil. This view of matter resolves a dualism into a monism. Evil, that is, matter, becomes of no consequence metaphysically because it has no existence. Anything that can rightly be said to exist exists by participating in the very source and center of being. And whatever does not has no existence. Matter unillumined by being is uncreated and its evil is deprivation and deficiency, unquote. Now this is a very plain statement from a man who is not even a Christian, but he recognizes that the Greek view of change as evil has very, very extensively infected our civilization. And it indeed has. In fact, much of conservatism is really Greek rather than Christian. It is hostile to change. It wants permanency. And of course, that's purely Greek thinking. It is not biblical. St. Paul, while uh, St. Augustine, while still under the influence of Neoplatonism, wrote and said of things of reality, as they are, they are good. Therefore, whatsoever is, is good. Now, the same idea continuing in philosophical thought was present in Alexander Pope, in his essay on man, when he declared, whatever, whatsoever, whatever is, is right. And again, in our day, Lenny Bruce, the so-called comic, 
declared, truth is what is. Therefore, no change is necessary in such a world. Whatever is, is right. The world as it is, is perfectly good. Now, such a view negates progress. Reality as it is, is good and right. Nothing needs changing. Greece collapsed because it resisted change and growth. Now, the same idea of the unchanging is good and change is evil infected medieval Christianity. And as a result, because it could not change, it resulted in an explosion the Reformation. But the same idea of change as evil began to infect Protestantism. For example, in a very beautiful hymn written in 1847 by Light, Abide With Me, he gives expression to pure Neoplatonism. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou that changest not, abide with me. For right, the problem was change. But it cannot be for us as Christians. It is sin, and there is a difference. Now, a second view of change is the modern one which, since the latter part of the 18th century, has dominated the mind of modern man. The idea that change is good, that change means growth, therefore perpetual change is sought, and change is welcome. Today, the sad fact is that both Conservatives and the liberals represent non-Christian perspectives with regard to change. The conservative is against change. He says it is bad. And the liberal says change is good. And he's for it. Now, when the philosophers of the Enlightenment began to move from the Greek idea of change to the modern view of change, the result was the French Revolution. They accepted two basic principles, the perfectibility of man. And by perfectibility, they meant sinlessness, total, absolute perfection, not the biblical concept of maturity and the idea that change is good. So when they accepted the principle that change is good, change would lead to perfection. And immediately, the result was revolution. It meant revolution for revolution's sake. History had been arrested by the Greek view modern view insists on perpetual revolution. Dr. Seaman, an historian, has commented on this, and he states that the re revolutionaries held that, and I quote, 
The factors which alone prevented man from becoming perfect were the superstitions of the church and the tyranny of kings, which between them condemned man to spiritual and temporal slavery. As Rousseau had put it in the explosive first sentence of the first chapter of his social contract, man is born free and is everywhere in chains. If the rest of Rousseau's Bible of Revolution consisted largely of verbose obscurities, the direction in which he pointed was clear enough for his like-minded contemporaries and successors. The end result of proclaiming the doctrine of human perfectibility to a generation who were simultaneously told they were free men condemned to slavery, but that they were slaves whose liberation was at hand, was the point of view which Shelley, the poet Shelley, expressed and others acted on, that the world would be a perfect place as soon as the last king had been strangled with the guts of the last priest. It was to be as easy as that. Unquote. A seaman is right. They did believe it was as easy as that. All you needed was to kill off rulers and priests and have continual change, and you would have the perfect society. Change for its own sake. Change away from Christianity is the answer to all their problems. Execute, destroy, change. Because change will somehow lead to perfection. Seaman declared further that the revolutionists believe that, quote, Social and political wrongs, whatever they were, could be put away by a communal act of violence. Theirs was a faith that through revolution, man could find a shortcut to a paradise on earth, unquote. That's exactly what is taught, what is believed in the public schools and institutions of our day. And if anyone thinks that the revolution has cooled off and died down, they're sadly mistaken. All that people believe today gears them for requiring revolution. They believe that the answer is to kill, to change, and paradise will be here. I visit enough campuses every year and talk to enough students to find that this is what they believe, that it's as simple as that. Until they are changed, until they are transformed by the power of Christ, revolution is inescapable because it is the faith of modern man. Everything in modern education, unless it is systematically Christian, prepares people to believe in revolution. And so you have people believing in change, revolution, as the answer 
And the only answer of too many people is, change is bad, that which is unchanging is good, which only renders them futile. Now, faith in revolution rests on faith in evolution, because faith in evolution is a faith in change as beneficent. After all, let's take the premise of the evolutionists, that there is no God and that the universe happened by accident, and that by chance variation, by change, further developments will take place. Why should someone assume that it is necessarily good? Why should it not be devolution, downward? Why should not the changes all be bad? Why should they be good? I, or why should not 50% of the changes be bad? So that if man is changing, if there is a process of evolution or devolution, the next step may be for everyone to be an idiot instead of Superman. Why do they believe that the next step is Superman? It's a faith in change as good. But there is just as much reason to believe that change could be bad. But no, it is a faith held without reason. A faith held emotionally. The change revolution is good. I have cited twice before, and it is necessary to cite again in this context, a very classic example, a very powerfully influential example of a belief in the goodness of evolution. Durkheim, Emil Durkheim, whose work on sociology at the beginning, the latter part of the last century, the beginning of this century, really governs sociology to this day. The two great names in sociology were Comte, the founder, and Durkheim. And Durkheim has, in his classic book, which you can still find, which is still studied on campuses, a very important chapter, which I have referred to, on the normality of crime. The criminal as an evolutionary pioneer, the one who is out in front in experimenting to establish the new normality, the next step in evolution. So when he is robbing you, he is introducing a new concept of property. When he is killing you, he is introducing a new concept of who shall survive. He is an evolutionary pioneer. And if you think it is an accident that the courts are increasingly easy on criminals, or that our state penitentiaries now have swimming pools and conjugal and non-conjugal visits and golf courses in the newest ones, and better facilities for entertainment than you and I have or can afford. After all, they are the pioneers in the evolution of man. 
If change is good, why not? After all, these are the people who are introducing the most change into society. The thieves, the murderers, the perverts, therefore, are pioneers of civilization, of evolution. Thus, evolution tends to deify change for its own sake. And to say that progress comes through change or revolution. And change is just chance variation. You change and it's good. As long as you change, you don't have to have a program. You kill, you destroy what exists, and it's going to be good. Now, how long would a doctor retain his practice if he prescribed method on the eeny, meeny, miny, mo basis, just through chance? This is the way that there is progress, therefore let's have progress by a chance selection of medicines. How long can a society based on such a faith remain alive? This is why our civilization is on course suicide. Because it believes that change is good. It will strike at all conservatives because they say change is bad by definition. And it will strike at all Christians because they believe in the unchanging law of God. There's no mistaking it. Our civilization is in crisis. It is on a suicidal course, and you cannot, under any circumstances, see any good coming out of a faith in change. It is a faith which is against God, says that everything by means of revolution will be made to work together for good. We must say it will only work together for evil because it is the enthronement of mindlessness, of destruction, of murder for its own sake. As against, therefore, the Greek view that change is bad, the modern view that change, revolution, is always good, we must assert urgently the biblical view in this day, because there is nothing except the biblical view that can deliver our world in this crisis. The Greek view leads to nothing. The modern view leads to suicide, to murder. As Christians, we must say that there is nothing worse than for a fallen world to have no change. Eden was a blessed place. 
But after the fall for man to dwell in paradise, in his sin, able to enjoy himself forever in paradise as a sinner, it would have been a curse on paradise. And so God cursed paradise, the ground, the world, because outside of paradise it was still unfallen. He cursed the ground for man's sake. That man might find himself unable to stay on, in an unchanging and a perfect society or world. Fallen man needs change, but he needs principled change. Change in terms of the law word of God. Permanency and changelessness belong to God, not to the creature. God says, I am the Lord, I change not. And he has given to us his infallible word, the scripture, that we might have a principle by which to change things. Change is good when it is principled by the word of God. When we change things to bring them into conformity to the word, then it is good change. But apart from that, change is simply the outworking of sin. There's a good French proverb, the more things change, the more they are the same. And that's true. When change is simply an outworking and expression of sin, the more things change, the more they are the same. The Christian, therefore, must affirm permanence and changelessness, but never with respect to the creation or man or any aspect of man and creation. He must affirm change, but never with respect to God and his work. There can never be any growth or progress or change that is worthwhile or have any meaning except in terms of God's law. The Christian, therefore, is not a Greek. He is not a reactionary. He does not want changelessness in the social order. He is oriented to the future, to, new, to the new creation. And that's why the American Constitution introduced something new in the idea of constitutions because the framers were Christians. The idea of amendment. They did not believe that man should try to erect something unchanging because man does not, in a fallen world, have that wisdom or that righteousness. Man is oriented in Christ to the future, to the new creation. Therefore, he is oriented to principles of change in terms of that which is unchanging. The patriarchs, therefore, were pilgrims and sojourners, Hebrews tells us, in terms of this. They didn't despise the world around them. They didn't want it to be unchanging. They wanted Canaan to change. They wanted the world to change. 
so that God's dominion could be manifested. And they were pilgrims in terms of the belief that God would in time. And they saw these things from God give Canaan to their posterity. That in the fullness of time, Christ would be born, the chosen seed of the line of Abraham. And that in due time, Christ's dominion would be from pole to pole. And their spiritual descendants would be as the stars of heaven, innumerable. And that beyond this world, even as they live, this heaven, their home was stopped. They were pilgrims and sojourners, looking forward to change in terms of that which is unchanging, the purpose and the word of God. Because the Christian is not at war with change, but with sin. The sinner wants to change everything except himself. The Christian welcomes change, which has as its principle the word of God. Without this principle, change is destructive. The Christian begins with regeneration, which is more than change. It is a new creation. And then the regenerate man as a new creation begins to change the world around him in terms of God's holy work, in terms of the unchanging God. Thus, only a biblical view of change is relevant to our world crisis. And we are in crisis. Revolution is the faith of the day. Change, blind, meaningless, murderous change. And it makes itself clear. It will not rest. And Shelley's remarks have been quoted over and over again by every revolutionist to our day. They will not rest until they strangle everyone in any position of authority and murder every person who is of faith. They will not cease until they destroy everything. We've been called to proclaim the word of God the only valid principle of change and to declare that change must come but only in terms of that. That this is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. In terms of that, we must believe in change. And only in terms of that. And in terms of that, we must work for victory and believe in God's victory. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that against the enormity of this world, this belief in revolution, thou who art God, 
have our sufficiency in the face of all things. But if thou art for us, we will be against us. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Make us strong in this faith, effectual in thy service, and faithful to thy work. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our time is really about up, but we have time for just a question or two, very brief ones. This is an extremely important subject, so... We would like to give it all the time possible. Well, if there are no questions, I'd like to read a paragraph from a very interesting book for the Christian Philosophy of Higher Education by John Paul von Groningen. It's a mediocre book at best. But in one of the chapters, one of the writers in this symposium writing on the marks of a Christian college says something that I think is very telling in terms of our problem today with education, which we had cause to refer to earlier. I quote, The best story that I know in the history of the American college is that of the way in which the great Timothy Dwight, perhaps the most famous college president which we have so far had in this nation, chose his first professor of chemistry. Parenthetically, Timothy Dwight was a great Calvinist clergyman who was president of Yale the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s. Dwight decided a century and a half ago that he would add chemistry to the offerings at Yale. So he looked around for an able professor. He met a good many chemists and did not like any of them. So he did a remarkable thing. He picked out a young man named Silliman aged only 23, who was brilliant, able, and committed, but had never even seen a chemistry experiment. Dwight appointed him professor of chemistry in Yale College and then sent him for three years to London to learn chemistry. Dwight's philosophy was this. A good man can become a chemist, but it is very hard to be a good man. Professor Silliman came back from London and conducted the most brilliant department of chemistry in this nation for 50 years. Today, Silliman College at Yale University is named for this man who was first appointed and then trained. This is a wonderful story, and if I were the president of a college, I would follow Dwight's policy. 
I think that's a very telling illustration and a very appropriate one for our day. We have one announcement. There will be a Bible study, beginning studies in the Book of Romans at the home of Dickens Sakura Gutierrez, 1216 Hill Drive at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, June 28th, this Wednesday. If you want directions, ask Dick Gutierrez. Let us bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and all. Amen.